In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. How about those scripture readings for a hopeful sort of attitude on a cold, dreary day? Did Lent start already, and uh, we're behind the times? Listening to them again, I thought, why didn't I preach from that epistle where, you know, one has has sown the seeds and the other grows it, and we could just have a happy time talking about how we come after others. Nevertheless, (laughs) we will persist. (laughs) There is good news in these scriptures. Somewhere, somehow, there's good news And it comes in a line in that first scripture. That first one is from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is giving Israel an enormous pep talk. After years of wandering in the wilderness, they've been wondering if God is still even listening to them, if God is in any way directing them or leading them. They're worried about what might come next. Israel's on the very edge of moving into this promised land that they've dreamed about, they've prayed for, they've hoped for. We don't know exactly the geographic setting of this speech for Moses, but something about its its imagery and majesty, it makes me imagine Moses on a hill and all the people are gathered there and they can see way off into the distance And so Moses matches that with his terms. God says, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. You'll be blessed. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear and are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, then I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in that land. Life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life, Moses says. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live loving the Lord your God, obeying God, holding fast to God, for that means life to you and length of days. Choose life. Choosing life, of course, can be every bit as dramatic and weighty as Moses suggests. We choose life in a new way whenever we move into a new relationship. We choose life when we plan for a child. We choose life when we make a new or better decision about the direction in which we're headed, when we move, when we buy an apartment or a house. We choose life in smaller ways as well, don't we? Choosing which conversation to be a part of can have to do with choosing a way of life or choosing another way that downgrades and degrades. When we choose what to eat or drink, in a way we're choosing life. We're choosing a quality of life. When we choose how to move or how to exercise, all of this can mean in the long run choosing life over death. In big ways and in small ways. 
In the gospel today, Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty as he points to some of the guidelines for our making all of these choices. Jesus is, of course, speaking and preaching with a backdrop of what is often simply referred to as the law, meaning, of course, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, but, but also all of the wisdom and the teaching that's associated with the law and its interpretation. Our gospel can sound a little like Jesus laying down the law. It can sound like a faith that leaves people out. But in fact, if we were to think so, I think we miss some of what's going on in this gospel. Because if we really tried to follow the letter of the law and the gospel, we'd find ourselves left out as well. Jesus is reinterpreting the law, just as he did in his life. He's turning it upside down. He's saying with his words, with his actions, with his healing, with his teaching... He's he's saying really loudly, it's not enough just to keep the law. That doesn't work. The key to living faithfully is to try to understand the things that move beneath the surface, the, the motivations and the moods, the fears and the fantasies that take us off track. If we pay attention to those things, then sooner or later we'll find, guess what? We're following in the way that God desires. Jesus gives a series of examples. He he repeats the commandment, you shall not murder. And then he, of course, goes further by uncovering some of the things that lead to murder. And so we might hear this and think, well, that's not talking to us. We're not going to murder anyone. But then if we think about the motivations, those deep down things, The anger, the frustration. If you drive the road rage, if you take the subway, the metro rage. All those minor annoyances that can all too easily escalate. We read about it again and again in the news. When over something silly and stupid, one person dies. Of course, we're not setting out to murder anybody, most of us probably. But it might begin by harboring a grudge or nursing a resentment. Jesus says, if we're not careful, we'll end up in court. Instead, Jesus says we should work at reconciliation. He speaks of going to the temple in Jerusalem for worship, but along the way you remember that your neighbor has something against you. And he says, stop your worship, stop what you're doing, go and work things out with your neighbor. Notice how Jesus phrases this. He doesn't say, if I have some problem with my neighbor, but he asks me to think more deeply if one of my neighbors has a problem with me then it's my responsibility to go and make peace. My tendency, maybe a lot of our tendencies, is to ignore problems. We sort of hope that they'll go away the next time we see the person, or we think to ourselves, well, maybe I just imagined that they were angry at me. At church and any organization at work, we we just avoid such and such, or act in a certain way, or say a certain thing next time, and hope that future conflicts can be avoided. 
But if we're alert to these things, when we come to the altar, we can feel that break in community. Something's off and it haunts us. And Jesus exaggerates the point. Um, if one actually left the temple in Jerusalem to go and be reconciled with one's neighbor, it would take hours or days. Uh, one couldn't just leave the offering one had just paid good money for, the goat or the turtle dove or whatever it was that one had just purchased to sacrifice. One wouldn't just leave it and go off. But nevertheless, Jesus is making his point, isn't he? That until we at least begin to pray for the person who has a problem with us or with whom we have a problem, whatever we do around the altar will be less than what it might be, less than what it can be, and we won't be free. Prayers of confession are beginning, a a note, a phone call, an email, a conversation with another person is a beginning. Praying for one's enemy or one's hard-to-get-along-with brother or sister or neighbor is a beginning, all of which opens our heart for God's grace to work on us and in us. If we took Jesus' words literally, we'd have a whole lot of unused communion wafers every Sunday. I don't think that's his intention. Communion itself is one of the means of grace God gives us to heal us, to feed us, to nurture us, to begin working in us. It's, as an early church um, person said, it's medicine for immortality. And so we're here to be, to be mended as broken people, to ask for God's grace. Jesus takes us in today's gospel into even messier territory. He says, you shall not commit adultery. But then he makes it worse. And he says that lust counts, urges count. All sorts of things can lead to adultery. And that's what he's asking us to look at. Our emotions, our heart. And then Jesus really starts preaching. He talks about divorce. Obviously, divorce is one of those issues like abortion, like homosexuality, like all sorts of things that really warrant an entire series of looking at the Bible closely, at looking at what Scripture actually says, at how the culture of the time influenced the saying of Scripture, at how faithful people through history have interpreted and understood the movement of the Holy Spirit. We affirm that we are people of faith, believing and living out what is said in Second Timothy, that all scripture is inspired of God and beneficial for teaching, for reproving, for setting things straight, and for disciplining in righteousness. But just as much, we are people of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps us interpret scripture in our own day for our own lives. There are times when a divorce may be an unfaithful decision. It can be made out of selfishness or spiritual immaturity. But there are also many times when a divorce is the only faithful decision that can be made. And then one needs all of one's faith to continue choosing life, even in the midst of criticism and misunderstanding and dark days. Choosing life, of course, means reconciling as much as possible. Choosing life means praying for everybody involved 
Choosing life means working on one's own issues, and choosing life after divorce or the ending of any relationship means being open to whatever God might do with the new relationship. We choose life in large ways and in small ways. We choose life with an attitude we adopt when we wake up in the morning. You've chosen life to some extent by trudging through the weather today and coming to church. We, we choose life in our thoughts, in our conversations, in our willingness to apologize, in our ability to forgive, in our faith to move on in the Spirit of God and move on in God's future. All of these scriptures today work together to underscore that the life of faith is not about following a law or several laws. It's never about the, spirit, the, the letter of the law. It's always about the spirit. To some extent, Jesus died for that belief. I hear some of that same language in a contemporary Benedictine sister, Sister Joan Chittister. Um, she's written something like 50 books and 700 articles. Uh, she's quite a force. Um, but from an interview she gave in 2004, her words have been used a lot more recently because she's talking about this thing, this tendency to make into law a phrase or a concept and then lose a sense of what the law is intended to do. In this particular interview, she's talking about how so many of her brothers and sisters in faith, people she loves, put all their energy into what they would describe as a pro-life cause. She says in the interview, I do not believe that just because one is opposed to abortion that makes one pro-life. In fact, in many cases, one's morality is deeply lacking if all one wants is a child born but not fed, if one wants a child born but not educated, if one wants a child born and not housed. She goes on to suggest that this means something for our political economy, where we take care of people who can't afford those essentials. She says that sort of thinking is not pro-life, it's pro-birth. If you're going to be pro-life, you need a much broader conversation on what, what pro-life would mean. Notice she's not disagreeing with the people she mentions necessarily, but she's pushing them and all of us to think beyond the sound bites, to think beyond the talking points, to think beyond the rallying cry, to think beyond the law. Whether one agrees with Sister Joan or not, notice that she's raising the same point Jesus raises. Choosing life is never about picking this law or that law or choosing which life or which aspect of life. Instead, choosing life means either moving into the life of God or moving away from it. Yesterday in this room, we celebrated the life of a wonderful woman, Carol Matteo. Carol was a longtime member of the Church of the Transfiguration, our sister church downtown, but in the last year or so, she had been coming here. She loved the choir. She loved this space. She loved the friendly people. But as we heard stories about her yesterday, both in the service and especially afterwards at the reception, um, 
I was thinking about how she was kind of a, an, an, a symbol of this whole sermon. She chose life every day. Years ago, when she was a single woman and she learned she was pregnant, she chose life. And then she went to the doctor and whatever they used to tell her what, what was going on, she realized she had twins. <laughs> Imagine. She told everyone she knew that her first reaction was absolute joy. This is a woman who was trained as a dietitian. She did her job at the hospital, tried to raise two little girls, and then she felt called to go back to school and do a master's in fine arts, to choose life. And so she took her two little girls and they moved to Syracuse and she went back to school. (laughs) She got her master's, they moved back to Manhattan. She went to work. All her friends told story after story about how they lived in Brooklyn, but they would take the subway into Manhattan every Sunday to go to the Church of the Transfiguration. That cost money, then as now. And friends would suggest, well, the little girls are small. Just have them go under the turnstile. Don't pay for them. Carol said, I'm taking them to church. They're paying for the subway ride. Over and over again, though, We heard stories about how she chose life, a life of beauty, a life of art, a life of wonder, often in poor times, in rough times. But that choice was consistent. Even in her last days when she was at Mount Sinai Hospital in a lot of pain, uh, the nurse with hospice was talking to her and the nurse said, is there anything I can do for you? She sort of looked at the nurse and she said, Fly me to the moon. (laughs) Those who knew and loved Carol will be choosing life because of her witness, because of her life. We all have Carols in our lives. Jesus again and again and again points people to the life of God in our midst to choose life over every other option. Before us is set life and prosperity, death and adversity. If we obey the commandments of the Lord our God, walking in his ways, then we shall live. And we shall live in such a way that our life is outlived by the one who is love himself. Redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, let us choose life this day and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.